We now have the Bible reading, so if you'd like to turn your Bibles to Numbers chapter 13, we'll be reading from verses 25 to 33. At the end of the 40 days, they returned from exploring the land. They came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. There they reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the Negev, the Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country, and the Canaanites live near the sea along the Jordan. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, We should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We cannot attack those people. They are stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, The land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there were of great size. We saw the Nephilim there, the descendants of Anak, come from the Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. Good morning, everyone. Let's pray. Father, we want, to, uh, we want to come to your word with open hearts and minds and spirits to be attentive to yourself as you might speak into our lives. And we pray, Father, that it is you that we hear and see and experience. And there's a responsiveness in us to your call upon our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Some years ago now, there was a, uh, a group of people who were called of God to plant a church here at Dural. Well, actually, Kenthurst is where it started, and then here to Dural. And a number of those persons had come from uh, our Cherrybrook Church, uh, others had come from um, Pennant Hills Church, and others had joined with them. And they came with a sense of a people with a task. They came with a sense of being a people on mission of establishing a community of faith in this particular district with a very clear purpose and a vision for the future ministry of this church. Friends, that call hasn't changed. It is still valid today. And while during these past years... There may have been times of growth and blessing as well as times of a struggle and difficulty. The task isn't complete. And how it is outworked and what it looks like today and into the future <clears throat> may change over time as we respond to the changing circumstances in which we find ourselves. But our call to mission, our purpose remains the same. 
However, I do wonder, as we then continue to be the people of God here in this place on mission, what are the things that we are most fearful of? What are the things that cause us the greatest anxiety whenever we think about moving forward? Maybe for some of us, we have fears about being rejected or we are uh, being poorly thought of by uh, some others, maybe even within the congregation or within our families or others in the community. Or maybe we fear about being exposed, that our faith isn't kind of strong as we kind of uh, other people might think it is. Or possibly we are anxious about succeeding or maybe failing. Maybe we're afraid of what God might ask of us or where God may take us. Or possibly, like many people, we just fear fear itself. You see, no matter what our fear or our anxieties might be about moving on in mission, it actually has the potential of paralysing us and keeping us from experiencing everything that God wants for us. How God wants us to worship and serve him. And in fact, one of the fears that actually keeps many of us reaching our fullest potential in life and ministry is our sense of inadequacy for what lies in front of us. The fear of the unknown, our unpreparedness, our sense of lack of competency or capacity or giftedness, anxious that we may not be good enough or that we might fail. In fact, that tends to underline all the other fears that I mentioned earlier. In 1994, I was on the uh, Bulldogs team bus heading to the Sydney Cricket Ground to play the grand final against Canberra. And in the front seat, left-hand side, where we always sat, was one of our players by the name of Marty Bella. Some of you older people who are in the league will know, remember Marty. Front row forward, fairly intimidating kind of bloke. Uh, played for Australia, played many State of Origin games for Queensland but he'd never played a grand final and this was his last game of his career, or so he thought. And I remember him leaning over to one of the other players sitting next to him and saying, I'm kind of scared. I've actually never been in a grand final before. And I recall being when we were in the dressing room sitting around and things were very quiet and he kind of said loud enough that a lot of the others heard, he went and said, this is worse than playing in a test game. This is worse than playing State of Origin. And then the game started, Canberra kicked off, and Marty did the one thing that a front row forward should never, ever do, try and catch the ball from the kickoff. And he dropped it cold in the goal area. So it was a line dropout. They got the ball, came back in, next set of six, trapped us inside the... Uh, uh, behind the line again, there was going to be another dropout. And I'm sitting near the bench with a number of the reserve players and one of them says, we've lost. 
We're two minutes into the game. Basically forfeited the game at that point. Ten years later, I was with the team again. This time we were in England. We'd won the 2004 Premiership and we were in for the World Club game over in England. We were in Leeds. And the very first night, see what happens after a grand final, some of your teams move on to other teams, some of your players, and you sometimes got some newer players. And I mean, uh, we'd gone to bed on the first night it was there. I was in my room and my phone rang at three o'clock in the morning. And it was one of the players, which is never a um, good sign usually, three o'clock in the morning. Uh, and uh, he said, look, uh, we need to talk. I said, OK, where are you? I'm in the bar downstairs. That's even worse to hear. Uh, but we need to talk. I didn't know who we were. It was Corey Hughes that was ringing me. So I went down into that bar and he said, uh, you need to talk to so-and-so because he's never even played first grade in his life. He's been picked to come away with the team. He's never played before. He's never played first grade and he feels he wants to go home because he feels he's not up to it. How can he come and play the World Club Challenge game here in England when he's never even played first grade before? So I had to spend time talking with him about the fact that he was picked and the coach had called him because he thought he, ha he had the capacity, he had the potential to become something into the future and help him to develop that confidence in, in that player. He went on to play. I had many regrets years later because Nate Miles won so many games for Queensland against that of origin side as he went on in his career. For him, his sense of inadequacy led to a new confidence. To Marty Bella, it led to forfeiting the game. We read a moment from early, from uh, a couple of moments ago, from the scriptures, a similar story that occurred thousands of years ago amongst God's people. In Numbers 13, we see the children of Israel were so overwhelmed by their sense of inadequacy for the task and for the challenge and for the opportunities that the, and the actual potential that lay before them in the promised land. And yet they had every reason not to be so. When you look back earlier in their history, we can see what happened in their history, their story to this point. After years of experiencing oppression and slavery, Moses had begged Pharaoh to let the people go free. However, Pharaoh, but before Pharaoh yielded, Moses had turned the Nile into blood. He'd brought about a rash of deadly plagues upon the Egyptian people. And finally, Pharaoh's hardened heart broke when he listened to the cries of sorrow resonating from every home where the first child born, a first child, a firstborn child had died. But then when Pharaoh realized he'd lost his cheap source of labor, he changed his mind and he pursued the Israelites. And the Israelites found themselves cornered. They found themselves in front of, a, of an enormous sea lying in front of them and an angry army fast approaching them from behind. And some of them began to cry out, it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. You see, they had begun to wish that they hadn't even started their journey with God. 
The struggle appeared too much. And so they wanted to retreat, at least to some level of comfort than where they were now. Ever felt that way? Ever felt like that when you've been facing some apparent insurmountable challenge? When the task sometimes can appear difficult or overwhelming? When mission can sometimes seem too hard or the future uncertain? I know I have numerous times. But Moses here encourages them. Encourages them to remain strong. Encourages them to believe that God can deliver them again just as he had done in the past. And he raises his wooden staff and he stretches out his hand across the sea and divides the water so that his people can walk over to the other side on dry land. And just as the last Israelite steps out into the ba- from the bank on the other side, the waters rush in back into the valley and drown all of Pharaoh's army. And then three months later, as Israel sits there camped on the desert of Sinai, Moses ascends to the top of the mountain where God carves out his covenant with his people. And Israel then promises her journey through the desert towards the promised land. And he continues to be with her while God ensures their survival by providing manna and quail for her to eat. You see, here is a people who had every reason to celebrate, who had every reason to be confident, because through difficult times and through struggle and pain and heartache and disappointment, they had experienced victory and they had overcome enormous obstacles because of God's intervention. They had every reason to praise God and to give thanks and to celebrate. And now was the time for them to move forward towards the promised land, to fulfill God's vision and task for the people, for his people, another step into the unknown. And according to Numbers chapter 12, Moses moves the Israelites further up the Sinai Peninsula to set up camp in the desert of Paran. And in chapter 13, Moses chooses a leader from each of the 12 tribes and commissions them them to explore Canaan, the promised land. And so we come to the report that these scouts bring back to Moses. And I want us to notice three things that stand out in this report. Three things. The first thing they spoke about was the richness of the land, the possibilities, the blessings, the opportunities that lay in front of them. In verses 26 and 27, we see how the scouts showed pieces of fruit they'd picked up and they said the land flows with milk and honey. It is everything that God had promised. 
And unlike the dry and the parched land and the desert where they were now at the moment, there was nothing like this land. There was nothing that this land couldn't produce. What richness, what blessings, what possibilities lay ahead of them in the land. And so I wonder what riches and what blessings and what possibilities that God may be leading us into at this point of our story. Not only in the life to come, but in the life now. Maybe it's reaching out to the unbelievers in our community or in our workplaces or our places of meeting or particularly amongst those whom God regularly brings into this space of influence here within the centre through our numerous activities and ministries. Maybe it's through some new ministry opportunity within the fellowship and beyond. For God is calling us to journey further from where we've already come. And he promises to bless us in our obedience. The promised land that God was calling them to journey into was something beyond their dreams. And Paul again reminds us in Ephesians 3.20, now unto him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. However, the second thing they spoke about in their report was about the people who inhabited the land. Verse 28, 29 reads, But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large, and we even saw descendants of Anak there. The Amak. The Amalekites live in the Negev, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites live in the hill country and the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. You see, friends, they began to murmur how difficult it might be, if not impossible. They began to be afraid that they wouldn't be able to conquer the land and possess what God had promised them. And it seemed too hard. And their fear and their anxiety grows and it becomes overwhelming for them. And they forget God's promises for them. They forget God's promises to them. And Caleb, though, shocks them with his optimistic challenge in verse 30 when he brings an alternative report because he says, let's go up and let's take possession of the land because we can certainly do it. And then the third and the most important thing I want us to notice about the report is found in verses 31 to 33. It appears here that, that Caleb's the only optimist in the group that we find elsewhere in Deuteronomy 1 that Joshua also agreed with him. So at least 10 of the 12 scouts immediately began to becoming negative towards his appeal to move forward. We can't possibly attack these people. They are stronger than us. All the people in that land are giants. And the last part of verse 33 really illuminates their true feelings when he, they, when he says, we seem like grasshoppers in our own eyes. 
and we look the same to them. Their fear, their anxiety overwhelmed them and the rest of the people. Do you know what these writers are saying? God, I know for several months you have rescued us from the chains of slavery. I know that you parted the Red Sea and you provided us with food in the desert. But God, you don't understand. We've got bigger problems now. We're too small. We don't have adequate resources to take the land that you've already given us. You've already promised us. And according to chapter 14, the Israelites continue to grumble against Moses, wishing they were back in Egypt. Their own fear of inadequacy stops them from moving forward and leaves them wandering aimlessly in the wilderness for 40 years. 40 wasted years. We have to avoid that happening to us. Because when anyone looks back in those days to the Israel, it's not a pretty sight. We see here a weeping, complaining, frightened, reminiscing, accusing people. Joshua and Caleb had the same set of facts as the other ten scouts. But they came to a different conclusion. They saw the giants. They saw the fortified cities. They saw the problems. But their faith gave them a different perspective. Now let me assure you, there is nothing, absolutely nothing wrong with Israel feeling inadequate. That's... That's being very, very human. We all experience that. But she had to choose between two different responses of how she might deal with those feelings. Her fear and feelings of inadequacy could have either been a source of discouragement or the beginning of a new courage. As Israel stood camp before the promised land, her fear of inadequacy did not need to lead to rebellion and despair and forfeit. She could have realised from her previous experience that her source of strength wasn't within herself, but that the God who had been faithful to her in the past would remain faithful into new endeavours. God's word is full of examples of people who felt inadequate for the tasks that they were assigned by God, but who were empowered by a renewed courage and strengthened from God. Moses himself, for example, as he stood barefoot beside the burning bush, confesses to God that he is inadequate to serve as God's spokesperson to Pharaoh. And he even offers up Aaron as a substitute before the Lord. 
And David, that little shepherd boy arm with a lever, singing his hand, feeling so inadequate as he looks across the valley and he sees Goliath draw his huge sword. I knew, I knew similar feelings. When I finished college and was sent to pastor out at Broken Hill, the group of kind of community that I'd ever struck before, a very different kind of place before, and felt quite intimidated in my mid-twenties of people that would describe me that, of that being a God-forsaken place. And yet after seven years, we found more men who worked underground coming to know Jesus than any other group. I knew the feelings of inadequacy when I began my ministry with the Bulldogs some 27 years ago because there was only one Christian in the whole code and how intimidating it was to meet and to be with people who were kind of celebrities and, um, and everyone looked up to and who was I just to come and kind of befriend them. And I think that I look today and I see that when I have lunch with them once a week, with all the players and the staff, we talk about Christian things all the time. They keep raising it all the time. And in a recent game, when we got together for prayer before the game, there were 10 players out of that team who got together to say that they wanted to honour God in the way they played. What a difference. Yet these and other examples teach us that even those times when we are most inadequate to enter into places where God calls us to mission or overwhelmed or we become overwhelmed with what lies ahead, often that is when God does his greatest work. Moses and David were humanly inadequate, but they were divinely empowered. What are our feelings of inadequacy keeping us from doing today? Maybe they're keeping us from moving into new directions. Possibly keeping us from taking up some new opportunity or initiative in serving God. Is it stopping us from getting out of the comfort of our own church or of our own particular group and reaching out into the lives of the people that God brings into our lives? Is it holding us back from some particular task that we know that we need to do or some relationship that we need to establish? Is it keeping us back in our commitment to or our service for God? Because God has a purpose and a plan for every one of us. He has a purpose and a plan for the ministries that each of us is involved in. He has a plan for Dural Baptist Church and a task for us as a church to be on mission. And as we pursue God's vision and purpose 
both in our individual lives and as a church. May he give us the courage first to admit our own human inadequacies and secondly to accept his divine empowerment. Ten of the scouts said that we can't possibly attack those people. They're stronger than us. We seem like grasshoppers in our own eyes and we look the same to them. But Caleb said, let's go up. Let's take possession of the land because we can certainly do it. However, this wasn't the end of the story. Forty years later, we read in Joshua 1 how Joshua is at the same place. That is, he's at the edge of moving the people into the land on the basis of the purpose and the promises of God. He's still quite anxious about the future and he's quite anxious particularly about following Moses. But note his promise, God's promise in verses 5 to 7. He says, no one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it from the right or to the left, that you might be successful wherever you go. And again in verse 9. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. And God promises to be with them as they journey on. And in chapter 3, they move across the Jordan into the land that God had promised them so many years before. We are already out on the playing field. We have the ball in hand. And we have a choice to make. Either to pick up the ball boldly and run with it or forfeit the game. At times there will be some pain and injury. Heartache, disappointments, Sometimes we'll make mistakes and we'll drop the ball. But ultimately, we will only win the game because we have the one who empowers us to overcome all things. One who empowers us to, come all, uh, to overcome all opposition and the final victory is assured. 
Don't waste the opportunities that are before us. Don't forfeit the game. But develop a new courage knowing that the God that we worship will empower us to do things beyond our imagination. It doesn't mean it will be, won't be hard and tough and challenging. It will be. But we have ultimate victory in the one who empowers us in the end. I invite you just to bow your heads just for a few minutes, for a few moments. And just to contemplate and reflect upon that. What is God calling you to? What is God empowering you to do? And then Dan and Aaron and the team will come and lead us into our final song. Let's just pray together.